about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. So verses 38 to 44. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in that region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, put on the large pot and cook some stew for these prophets. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine and picked as many of its gourds as his garment could hold. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured for the men, but as they began to eat it, they cried out, Man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Open our eyes, Father, that we may see wonderful things from your law. Amen. Uh, If you're joining us this week, you're coming in the third week of a series of sermons looking at the prophet prophet Elisha, uh, this guy from the Old Testament. Um, In the first two weeks of our series, uh, we looked at the transition from his mentor, Elijah, to him, Elisha, and how he, he, he took up Elijah's mantle, his cloak, and with it, Uh, took up his ministry when Elijah ascended into heaven. That's a lot to take in. Read chapter 2 if you want to catch up. This week, we're moving into the kind of the body of Elisha's ministry. Um, We find him now kind of established as a prophet. We're we're skipping over chapter 3, actually, um, in order to look at three stories from chapter 4. Now, why are we skipping over chapter 3? Mainly because we don't have time to do everything. 
uh, but also because of something we'll see in these stories, these miracles that I'll come back to. The three stories we're looking at this week are short ones at the beginning and end of the chapter, chapter 4. If you're looking at a Bible, you'll see that between them is a long story uh, that Matt will take us through next week. In these three little stories, though, um, we see Elisha helping people and saving people facing a range of threats. In the first, he saves a vulnerable widow and her sons from the threat of debt slavery um, by miraculously producing enough oil so that she can pay pay off her debts and live. In the second story, he, he somehow saves people from the dire consequences of careless cooking. Um, And in the third one, he provides abundantly out of, in conditions of real scarcity, feeding a hundred people with only a little bit of food in the midst of a famine. They're a bit weird, these little stories. What do we make of them? Uh, What can we learn from these stories in our day and age? Well, perhaps a good first step is to notice the similarities between these stories and the miracles of Jesus. Some of you who've read the Gospels and are familiar with them, uh, the stories of Jesus' life, will have noticed these on the way through, but if you didn't, that's okay. Um, There are real similarities. Jesus did things just like these little miracles. Not exactly the same, but very similar. For example, Jesus more than once comes to the aid of widows and their sons. The most striking parallels, though, are those with the last story we read here uh, about the provision of food to lots of people. Uh, This is very similar to a miracle that is recorded in all four of the Gospels, which is Jesus, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Um, I'm not meaning for you to read all of this, but I just wanted you to show side by side. Here's 2 Kings 4 and the story in Mark chapter 6. And what we see in this story uh, is that all sorts of elements are the same, actually. The order, uh, Jesus and Elisha, they give the order to give the people food, and then you've got the disciples or the servant responding with incredulity and disbelief. How the heck are we going to do that? And then you have the call to press on, nevertheless. No, says Jesus, give them the food, and Elisha says, "Give, give it to them. And then you've got... Um, the abundant provision that results in the end. Go and have a read of Mark chapter 6 afterwards if you're interested. Um, These similarities between Elisha's miracles and the ones that Jesus did, they help us understand something people often find odd when they first read the Gospels, which is that people keep calling Jesus a prophet. A great prophet has appeared among us. And sometimes they even say, you, looking at Jesus like they know him, they say, you are Elijah. And when you first read the Gospels, you're like, what the heck is that about? It's about this. That happened because Jesus kept doing things that were really very like things that people had read about in the stories of Elijah and Elisha in the Bible. So this is a real key, these miracles. They're a real clue for kind of understanding Jesus and who he was and how people reacted to him. Now, I find find that pretty fascinating. I hope you do too. I I think it's an interesting piece of kind of Bible. Um, But is is that all there is to say? I mean, that is something, right, to know that about Jesus. But is that all we can learn from these stories, that they help us understand Jesus a bit better? 
Well, I think we can actually go further than that. We can go further because the similarities between these miracles are there for a reason. The reason is, it's the same God at work. The God who worked through Elisha is the same God who was present in Jesus Christ. And in both cases, the miracles show us something about him. They show us his consistent character and purposes. These stories of remarkable works of God are signs. They point us to things about God and his kingdom. They show us who God is, what he cares about. They are, in a way, glimpses of the kingdom of heaven. So let's ask, then, what do these little stories show us? What do they signal to us about God and his kingdom? I think they signal three things. Uh, or at least I think these stand out to me most of all. First, the heart of the Lord for the vulnerable. Second, the patience of the Lord for the foolish. And third, the power of the Lord for the empty-handed. So that's the structure of where I'm going. Let's take them one at a time. First, the first thing these stories show us, I think, is the heart of the Lord, his tenderness and compassion for the vulnerable. This comes out really powerfully in the first story. We're introduced to a widow who is in a desperately vulnerable situation. The wife, this is verse 1, of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that he revered the Lord but now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. In those days, and actually still often today, to be a widow was to be extraordinarily vulnerable. The husband of this widow had been a member of Elisha's kind of troop. In a way, it's like he'd gone into ministry, but now he's died and left the finances a mess. With a debt to pay, this woman was in a bad situation. Her two sons are at risk of debt slavery, that is, of being made slaves for a time period in lieu of payment of a debt. Do imagine yourself into this story a little at this point. Take a moment to feel the, the desperation and fear in this woman's voice. Well, Elisha's response is one of real concern. Have a look on your sheets there at the next verse. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? This is, it's not, that's not a kind of, how can I help you? It's, a, how can I help you? It's a genuine question. He wants to help, and he looks for a way, and when the woman can't think of anything, because she has almost nothing now, Elisha finds a way to help her by miraculously multiplying the little that she has until she is secure. Do you know, this response of Elisha here stands in stark contrast to Elisha's response in another request that he actually receives in the previous chapter. Now, we didn't read it. You can go and read chapter 3 at some point if you want to. But I, I do want to just show you this. In chapter 3, what happens is that the new king of Israel, King Jehoram, who's King Ahab's son, if you've been with us, you'll remember Ahab, was a disaster, his son Jehoram gets himself stuck on a military ex expedition to bring the neighboring nation of Moab 
back into line. Okay, don't worry too much about the details, you can read it. Basically, he goes out with some kings and armies and they get stuck in the desert. And it's badly planned, badly executed, and there they are, and they don't have enough food, and they end up reaching out for Elisha. They ask for Elisha's help. Look how Elisha responds. This is verse 13 of chapter 3. Elisha said to the king of Israel, Why do you want to involve me? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab, because actually the king of Judah has gone with him on this expedition. Elisha said, as surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not pay any attention to you. But now bring me a harpist. Okay, the harpist is a bit weird. Um, you can read about the harpist if you read chapter 3. Basically, it helps him prophesy in this case. But anyway, what I want us to notice here is the difference between this reaction and Elisha's reaction to the, the widow, which is the very next story. Right? This king, too, is actually in a desperately difficult situation, but his cries almost fall on deaf ears. You would have thought that this was a golden opportunity for Elisha, Right? Here's the king of Israel reaching out for help. Great chance to show the Lord the interested. But this widow, he's all ears. She gets his full attention and his creativity and his help. He wants to help even though she is nothing in the world's eyes. Desperate, poor, and powerless. Because you see, the Lord does not judge things the way we do. He does not favor the rich and the powerful, those who have sway and influence and importance in this world. The Bible talks about this as God not showing favoritism or partiality. Listen to how the book of Deuteronomy puts it. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 10. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Rich people don't get special treatment. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. This is the truth that is illustrated in this story of Elisha and the widow, the heart of God for the vulnerable. The Lord's love, you see, has a consistent shape and weave to it. God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. Can I urge you to just hear this and feel the weight of this for a moment, that the Lord's heart turns Toward the vulnerable, God names himself the defender of the fatherless and widows and the lover of foreigners. I hope this is an encouragement to you if you feel desperate and very vulnerable at the moment. I hope also that all of us will feel the pull of this that if this is true, then this is surely the direction in which our hearts must turn also. We, we saw it there at the end of the passage from Deuteronomy, didn't we? The last verse there. And you also 
are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. If God's heart turns towards the vulnerable, so must ours. We must not be those who turn away from the needy and the desperate, perhaps in judgment and criticism. Christians cannot learn to live that way. Do you know, Christians have always kind of had this truth at the heart of their faith, but they've sometimes forgotten it. I'm worried our world is forgetting this at the moment. We must not. We must not be scornful and dismissive of those in need, and we cannot be those who show special attention to the powerful and the wealthy. There's lots of ways we could go to make this practical, but just listen to this one example of how James applies it in the New Testament. This is from the letter of James. My, brother, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes comes in also. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand here or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James, this is just one practical example of the principle we see on display here. And man, how easy it is to do exactly this. How easy it is to extend a much more comfortable welcome to people who look like they've got their life together and they're doing well than to people who make us feel uneasy and who we don't quite know how to connect with. There's lots more we could say and explore here. We could talk about our area and where the needs are. We could talk about the, the real need we have for volunteers in our ministries to those who are, in a way, really vulnerable. Food ministry, we belong. But for now, let's just see in this story the reminder of where the heart of God is and ask ourselves whether our hearts turn in that direction also. Okay, that was quite a long first point, but don't worry, we're still on track. The second thing I think these stories show us is the patience of the Lord for the foolish. I think this is what we see in the second story, especially. Um, to understand this story, this second one about the, the, the cooking, we have to notice, verse 38, that there was a famine. This is a time of hunger. And I think that's why Elisha's servant is willing to try out some new um, vegetables and why people are willing to give it a go. Elisha sends his servant to make stew and he finds something that looks interesting and he cooks it. But it's a dreadful mistake because the stew becomes poisonous. It's hard to say how dangerous this stew was. Maybe it was just really gross. But I think it's worse than that because there is death in the pot is not what starving people say when they just don't like the flavours. Right? I think this is worse. People are eating and thinking, I'm going to die. Uh, there's something toxic about this. It's actually it's really foolish what this servant does and what the others permit him to do. Did you notice that in verse 39, we're told that no one knew what they were? That's... He's obviously showed them these, these fruits and they've all gone, yeah, go for it. You 
don't do that. You don't, if you don't know this, don't do that. If you're camping, don't just find wild ingredients that you don't know what they are and cook with them, especially mushrooms. Don't do that. It's very stupid. And the normal way the world works at this point is to say, well, you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. If you do something stupid, it has consequences. That's only natural, right? But the Lord is gracious to them here in this calamity. Elisha tells them to get flour and he adds it and whether through culinary brilliance or miraculous aid, the stew is suddenly edible. You know, it might not seem like much, this story. But it is a window onto something good about God. God is patient with fools. He does not require them always just to suffer the consequences of their mistakes. Elisha throwing flour into the pot and fixing it, that is an image of the Lord's patience and generosity towards the foolish. Unlike the world, which can be harsh and remorseless and unforgiving, God does not require people simply to reap the consequences. He, he suffers our folly. I hope this will be an encouragement to you if you have got yourself into a muddle or a mess. If you have been stupid, frankly, and made a mess of things, of your work, of your relationships, of your finances. Know that the Lord does not just frown at you and laugh and say, you idiot. He doesn't do that. He loves you still and is patient with you. One more thing I think these stories highlight. The last thing is the power of the Lord for the empty-handed. Each of these stories shows us this, actually. But especially the first and the last. The first one shows it just with the miraculous abundance of oil. Can you imagine the feeling in that room as the widow and her son started to pour out the oil and it just kept coming and jar after jar was filled and the weight and the terror started to lift and it just turned into joy and laughter and they're like, holy cow, look at all this oil. I love the way that in the, that story, just like in the last one, there's, there's no explanation for how it happens. It just happens. The miracles in the Bible are often like that, actually. Something impossible just happens, as if it's the most natural thing in the world. There's one jar of oil and it pours out and it fills up dozens and dozens of jars. There's 20 small loaves and 100 people and it's just, there's just enough and there are leftovers. This is what the power of God is like, you see. It is the power of the creator God who simply is not limited in the ways that we are. The normal conditions and dynamics of life don't apply to him. The normal economy of scarcity does not apply to him, doesn't operate. This is what we're seeing here, the power of God to bring abundance, to overcome 
obstacles and scarcity and want. It's not magic. There are no magic words. There are no special tricks. Things just happen differently because the Lord is there. How do you feel about this kind of power? I think it is so humbling of our own ability. It is, it is so hard, so very hard, to actually do anything. Think about the labour you put into building things, or making things, or organising things, at work or at home. Think about how hard it is to really achieve something, and not just churn, to actually do something. Uh, have you ever grown vegetables? Okay, this is, I'm not very good at this. I once built a vegetable bed and, you know, filled it with the soil, did all the right things, started, started to grow things. I reckon the tomatoes and carrots I produced cost, about, cost me about $100 each. It's hard to, to, to do things and grow things. And, and even if, like, you're good at vegetable gardening, actually real work, real achievements are costly. Think about what it costs us as a society to build a road, to provide health care, to have enough money to, to sustain a, a safety net, to, 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 to build anything. And... Here is Elisha just brushing all that aside because of the power of God and just saying, oh, it's fine, there'll be enough. There'll be some left over. Don't worry about it. There's something almost offensive about it. Well, if that's true with Elisha, how much more with Jesus? Uh, we noticed at the beginning that Jesus did miracles like these and especially this miracle of feeding. But what also stands out with Jesus' miracles is how much more dramatic they are. Elisha feeds a hundred with twenty loaves, which, you know, like if everybody just has a small bit, you can actually cut them up that way. But you can't do that with feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Elisha unsettles our normal balance sheets. Jesus just blows them up. And this is important because... It points us to the thing that in the end all the miracles are about. I said at the beginning that miracles are signs. They communicate. They show us something. They show us what God is like and what his kingdom is about. And with the, with the miracles of Jesus, it's like the volume has been turned right up. And that is because it's in Jesus. And through him that the promise of all these miracles finds its fulfillment. You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus in the end is the one great miracle that all these miracles point us to. It is the one great act of God, the place where God's character and power are made known decisively and perfectly in an act of salvation. Do you know, each of the miracles we've looked at today actually gives us a glimpse of that one great miracle. Each of them in their own way is an image of what God has done for us in Christ. The widow's situation in that first story is actually a scarily accurate image 
of our situation. Because all of us are actually vulnerable in exactly this way. We find ourselves with a debt that we cannot pay and without anybody to provide for us or protect us from it. And the debt is our sin, you see. And because of it, we run the risk of losing everything, of being sold into slavery. Jesus described our situation in just this way, as captives at the mercy of a strong man. The widow and her sons, friends, that is us. But the Lord is the defender of the fatherless and widows. And in Jesus Christ, in the one great miracle, he came to our aid. He paid our debt and set us free. The second story too shows us the gospel for it reminds us that in Jesus, God has saved us from our foolishness. You know, these stupid fellows holding their bellies in agony because they foolishly ate something they found in the wild, we might not like it, but they are an image of you and me, actually. Of the messes that we get ourselves into without thinking, without knowledge, because we act ignorantly. We, we assume we'll be fine and we think we'll know what we're doing and we don't. The Bible says we're not just lost because of our sin, we're also lost because we're sometimes foolish and it has terrible consequences. But in Jesus, the wisdom of God took up those consequences, the, the consequences of our foolishness and endured them in our place. Finally, the third story too shows us the gospel, for aren't we just like those who ate that bread? Simply recipients of grace. Those who receive an act of power beyond what we could imagine or deserve. Isn't that a perfect image, actually, of our situation when we trust Jesus? Those whose hands were empty, who totally lacked the resources to provide for themselves, and are simply given a gift, given an abundance. You see, the purpose of Elisha's miracles and of Jesus's is to point us to the one great miracle. And that, as we finish, is important because mostly in life we don't get miracles. Debts are real and have to be paid. And so are sicknesses and poverty. Foolishness mostly has consequences. Mostly we don't get miraculous deliverance from all of these. But that's okay. Because we do get the one great miracle that all these stories point us to. And the life of faith is about trusting in that one great miracle and waiting patiently in hope to see it play out. We, in hope, we were saved, says the Apostle Paul. Mostly, you see, the life of faith happens in the bit before we get to see the miracle, God's deliverance and power. To put it in terms of this stories, we live, the life of faith lives, in the moment when the woman has to go round asking all her friends for jars. 
Can you imagine how weird and awkward that would have been? I need a jar. Actually, do you have 10 or 20 jars? What do you need them for? The prophet told me to get... And she just has to go round. And it, she hasn't yet seen what's going to happen. She just knows she's got to ask for some jars. The life of faith is lived in that moment when these guys writhing in agony are told by Elisha to get some flour. Flour? How is that going to help me? It's lived in the moment when Elisha's servant and the disciples have to start handing out bread to these masses of people not having a clue how this is going to work. Not yet seeing and experiencing God's power to give life and to overcome the necessity and death of this world. It's about stepping forward in faith on the basis of a promise. And we can do it confidently because the one great miracle that all those miracles point to really has happened. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead for our salvation. And so we know that in the end, the power of God will be shown to us. And you and I will not regret having trusted in him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the prophet Elisha. And we thank you for these wonderful, strange things he did and the way they point us to you and your kingdom, to your heart for the vulnerable, to your patience with fools, and to your power for those with empty hands. And we thank you that you have shown these things and given these things and acted in these ways for us in the Lord Jesus Christ to save us. We praise you and we trust you in his name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.